0: 1 Peter chapter number 1, if you would, and begin reading with me in verse number 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Bless you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again. To a lively hope on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Every time that we open our Bibles to First Peter on these Sunday mornings, we need to be reminded that Peter is writing this epistle to suffering saints. The Bible is not written in a vacuum. It's not just words written on a piece of parchment. The Bible is a living book. And this is a very personal letter that's written by an aged apostle to real people who were being persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus. These first century Christians had trusted Christ and they had joined what most of the world believed was a cult. These people believed that a man who had lived just 30 the 35 years before their time, was actually the Son of God. They believed that that this man who had gone to this cross and had died in what most of the world believed was the Roman government just putting a man to death for his insurrection. These people believed that he had died for their sins as a ransom to God. And these people further believed that this man had been buried, but three days later, that life somehow came back into his body, that he was resurrected from the grave, that he had ascended back to heaven, and that he would one day return again for them. They basically believed what I believe, And that was a very preposterous thing for them to believe. But thousands of people in that first century had believed that gospel. They had had their lives transformed by it, had become Christians. And the word Christian was more of a pejorative than it was a commendation. And because of their faith and their fanaticism in following Christ, these people suffered. The Jewish community hated them and spearheaded persecutions against them. The society at large looked on them as the off of the world. But then the Roman government, using the power of their day, began to unleash what history knows as ten waves of persecution that would last somewhere around 250 years, Christians became the scapegoats. Anything that that happened that was bad, any natural catastrophe, it was easy to blame the Christians. One of the church fathers, a man named Tertullian, he wrote, he said, they think the Christians the cause of every public disaster, of every affliction with which the people are visited. If the Tiber rises as high as the city walls, if the Nile does not send its waters up over the fields, if the heavens are given no rain, if there's an earthquake, if there is famine or pestilence, the cry is away with the Christians to the life. Christians are scapegoats. They, they accuse Christians of, of everything. And and I, and I thought this morning, and I will not, but I thought it would be good to come in and just give a brief history of those ten waves of persecution, and you ought to read it and study church history. Because really, it, it reminds you of, of a couple of things. It, it reminds you, one, that the world hates Christianity. It did back then. I'm going to tell you that it still does. And we may live in a more civilized world than they did in the first century. But the world now is no more sympathetic to Christianity than it was back then. The world has more care for abortionists and, and sodomites and Black Lives Matters and Tifa and, and, and Islam and a host of other ideologies than they do for what you believe. We were out just last week passing out tracks, and 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 I got an email by the time I got back home. And I don't think that I I actually passed this track out, but I got an email uh, that somebody had gotten a track from our church and then looked up the church and and was and was was furious. Was furious. Some lady was furious that we had crammed our religion down her throat, and we didn't actually. Somebody just gave her a track with a smile. You you can read it. You can throw it away. You can refuse it. You can burn it. What you do with it. But it made her absolutely furious. There's not a single thing that you could have given her that would have made her more angry than a piece of paper with the name Jesus Christ on it. And if that woman had her way, there would be no churches. There would be no Christians. The world to her would be a better place without us. This world hates you, and it hates everything that you believe. Don't ever forget that. You're a stranger. You're a pilgrim in this world. But when you study church history, it not only reminds you that the world hates Christianity, but it would give you an example of what true devotion to Christ really looks like. Because out of those persecutions, out of those times of trouble come the greatest stories of Christian triumph. The stories of men and women who who braved wild beasts, who sang while they were being burned at the stake, gave testimony while while they were literally being killed. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, well, you ought to read that book. And, and it tells the great stories of, of Christians, men and women who, who took everything that the world threw against them and they still stood with conviction and firm in their faith. And it ought to convict us because modern, this is not my message, but modern day Christianity is soft. And that includes most of us in this room. Standing right here includes all of us. And when you read what others have endured for the cause of Christ and what it took to stop them and they still would not stop, and then you compare it to 21st century Americanized, modernized, homogenized Christianity, I'm going to think it's a different world. I believe believe that if the Lord tarries for much longer, that this next generation of American churches is going to have a chance to prove their devotion or lack of devotion to Christ. You are witnessing the death of America before your very eyes. Your liberties and your freedoms are being stripped away faster than you can keep up with. And most Americans surrender their rights to unelected bureaucrats with no resistance. And the same weakness is found in the church as well. And I'm just saying, just to get warmed up, that dark days may be coming and it won't be well with the typical Christian in America. Well, we've we have, we have we've, we've been looking at 1 Peter, and we have seen how that Peter begins this letter. He's writing the Suffering Saints, but he doesn't begin with suffering. But the first thing that he starts out talking about is salvation. And we have spent several weeks in verse 2 and then some of verse 3 last week, and, and it's a very rich discourse on, on the depths of salvation. And there's great themes such as election and sanctification and justification and eternal security, but it's all right in here. And the design of Peter is to remind them that though your condition on earth is bleak, your position in heaven is bright. And most Christians, I said this last week, that most Christians look at their salvation through their circumstances. In reality, we ought to look at our circumstances through the lens of our salvation. There's a whole different perspective and so he's writing to suffering saints, but he's talking to them about their salvation. Let me remind you, first of all, of who you are and what you have in Jesus Christ. And when you're anchored in that truth, then you can brave the world. Three things, I only got to one of them last week, and I, I am going to finish this section this morning. But notice in verse number two, that he talks about the source of our salvation. We spent several weeks here. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And last week we noted the work of the Trinity. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead working in concert in the plan and the completion of our salvation. And what a great truth and what a great verse. And I was tempted to give you the rest of what I could not give you last week in verse 2. And I'm not going to. I'm just going going to move on. Was the source of our salvation. I want you to notice secondly in verse number three, here's the substance of our salvation. Look at verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I said just a word about that last week, but here's what I said. Theology always leads to doxology. It should, it should. Now, I know that sometimes you can give theology and it's too heavy and the mind can't comprehend. I know that sometimes you can give theology in the a, in a presentation. The presentation gets in the way. It's dry and it's boring. I understand that. But truth itself, truth, theology, learning about God and about your salvation, when that truth gets into your heart, not your head, but when it gets into your heart, the response is praise to God. It's called a doxology. 1986, I went off to Bible College, Pensacola Christian College. I was there for four years, straight out of the hills of West Virginia. And I want to tell you, for a, for a hillbilly, for a country boy to go there, everything was fancy damn I remember, I remember, the first chapel service that we had. Now, for me, back then, and, and all of you students now, you've got it made. You don't know how well you have it made before. In my day, in my day, chapel, chapel was in the old high school gymnasium, way over there by St. John's Chapel. Now, my freshman year, I made a freshman mistake. It was really dumb, but I didn't do anything. I was a freshman. You can't be anything but dumb when you're a freshman. And so, so my freshman year, I took P.E. second hour second episode. so I I had I had one class whatever it was then after that class is over you immediately run to the field house changing clothes and first first thing was soccer that was the first thing well I'm from West Virginia nobody plays soccer in West Virginia there's never been a dumber sport than soccer okay you can't even touch the ball so 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 i got to play soccer all right and you go out to the field house now 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 the soccer field you, I don't know I don't know what's out there now but it used to be the old maintenance warehouse over there um, and 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 there's um, right now it's it's all parking parking lots so back back there uh, for student parking that that's where it was so, so we go out there we would play soccer and we get all sweaty and then the next hour is chapel. I literally have fifteen minutes to leave the soccer field, get back to the field house, try to get a shower, change clothes, go all the way over to the old high school auditorium and hope there's not a train on the tracks. That's what we—that's what we had to do in the old days. All right. Now y'all, y'all students nowadays are too soft. You could you could handle that now, but I remember first time I remember the first time coming in there and the bell rang and everybody rose and they began to sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Do you know the song? Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above you. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. That's a doxology. I sang it hundreds of times for four years, every day, 10.05. Praise God. You know, I sang it for four years, and not one time did it ever inspire a worship in my heart. It never did. It wasn't intended to. By the way, by the way, you know that doxology was written by an Anglican preacher in the 1600s? That's an Anglican song. That's not wrong not wrong it. But you never did this by worship. Because what that was intended, when everybody got up to sing that, what it was intended to say was, you better be in your seat by now, or you're you going to get married. That was the purpose of the doxology. Is anybody with me? That's what that meant. If you ain't standing there singing, you late, and, and depending on who your monitor is, then you're probably going to get married marriage unless, unless you're dating her. But other than that, you're probably in trouble. Huh? That, that, that's a doxology. Several times in the Scriptures, the writer is writing along, and it's almost as if he just gets caught up in what he's writing, and praise just spills out of his pen. Hold your finger right here. Go to First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29, and and here's one such praise. David, and David gets caught up in giving an offer. That's what he's doing. He's given an offering to the temple. He gets caught up in praise. And 1 Chronicles 29 and verse number 11, he says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory. And the majesty, for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted and set above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. That's a doxology. It's just praise. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Man, they're all over the Bible. I'll just give you a couple of them. But in look at Ephesians chapter 3, this is Paul writing. Ephesians 3 and verse number verse number 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's a doxology. So, so Peter, Peter's writing and he gives us this this doxology and here's the reason why it is because praise raises the spirit do you know what will comfort you in dark days it is to praise god find a song to sing and sing it back to it find a song to sing and sing it back to because singing and praise, praise will drive away discouragement and depression. It'll drive away depression like nothing else can. And Peter knows that they're suffering, and there's no physical remedy for them, but the spirit can be strengthened by praising God. Persecution should shut should not shut down praise suffering should not take away our song. Trials should not rob us of our triumph. And it says nothing about the grace of God when you sing when everything is going your way. But when you sing in the storm, that says something about God's grace. He's writing and he gives us this doxology. Now when I look at verse number three, it's a big verse. And and you've got to break it down. You can't wrap your mind around it as a whole, and so you have to dissect it. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now the focus of the verse for me is this phrase, a lively hope. Because somebody in one of those five provinces is going to pick this letter up who has lost all. Hope. There is somebody who has lost everything that they've owned. And there's somebody who's been forsaken by family and lost a job and been abandoned by their friends. And, and, and there is somebody who's going to pick this letter up and they feel like that there is no hope at all. And Peter's going to say to them that we have a living hope, we have a lively hope. Now, watch this a lively hope. It is a hope that is grounded. In our regeneration, look at verse number three again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Here's all it's saying: is we have been born again. That's regeneration. So many people believe the answer is reformation. It is not reformation that you need. No, it is regeneration. You see, Reformation would put new clothes on the man. Regeneration put a new man in the clothes. My hope, listen, my hope this morning is anchored in the new birth. I have been born into the family of God. I've been given new life from above. I'm telling you that my hope is not in my church membership, and it's not in my baptism, and it's not in my good words, and it's not in my charity. My hope that anchors me in this world is that I am born of God. So the day that I came to Christ as a sinner and was born again of the Spirit of God and His life was imparted to me. What hope are you going to cling to in this world if you don't have that hope? Surely, surely your hope is not in a political party. I don't care which one it is. Surely, surely your hope is not in the economy. We well, better not be. Surely, surely your hope is not in in your job security. Surely your hope is not in your health because health is so fragile. The hope that I have, it is grounded. It is rooted. It is anchored. It is based in one thing. I have been born again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But holy, lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I have a lively hope that is grounded in my regeneration. But, but then in the verse, I have hope that is guaranteed by his resurrection. Unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So all over the earth there are saints who are battered and beaten and buffeted. This year, this year we have lost members in our church to death. We have we have a brother with a month right now that that needs God to just to touch him and help him right now. We're praying for that. There's going to be people that will listen to this message either now or later, and, and they'll listen to it with a heavy heart, and they need a a fresh rope, hope, ray of hope in their life. And, it's not empty epithets. It's not can the shades that's going to do it. It's not back. They need something. They need something that is concrete. They need something that cannot be taken away. The living hope that we have is guaranteed. It, 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 is, it is grounded in the new birth. It is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. Because he got up, I'll get up. They laid his body in a grave, and for three days, hell partied, and Satan gloated. But on that third day, life came back into that body. He walked out of that grave victorious over the greatest enemy, death. Death could not hold him in that grave, and death would not be able to hold me in my grave. His victory becomes our victory, guaranteed by his resurrection. There was, an old, there was an old Southern Baptist preacher, pastored First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, for 50 years. His name was W.A. Criswell was a great preacher, a great preacher of, of generations ago. And W.A. Criswell was preaching on this hope and, and the resurrection and his victory becoming our victory, and he compared it to David and Goliath. He said that when David walked into the valley of Elah that day to face Goliath, he went and he faced Goliath by himself, but he faced Goliath on behalf of the nation of Israel. David represented Israel, and the Philistine, the giant, the, 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 Goliath. He represented the Philistines, and the giant was too formidable a foe for the Israelites. But 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 David went in there by himself, and David was victorious over Goliath, and his. Victory was shared by the rest of the nation of Israel. Their champion won the victory, but his victory became their victory that day. Israel defeated the Philistines because their champion defeated Goliath. And when Jesus won the victory, I feel like preaching for just a moment, when Jesus won the victory, all of those in Christ won the victory. When Jesus raised from the dead, it was guaranteed that all of those in Christ will be raised from the dead. In fact, in Luke, it calls us the children of the resurrection. My hope is guaranteed by the but then I want you to know this verse before i hurry in. It is a hope that is grounded in our redemption. It calls on born again. It is a hope that's guaranteed by his resurrection. But is a hope that has a goal of our redemption. Look at verse number four. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So that living hope, it is, it is, it, it is anchored in the past, It is active in the present, but anticipates something in the future. I look back to the cross. I look back to the day that I got saved. And the fact that I have been born again, that I'm born into the family of God, that anchors my hope right there. You can't take that away from me. And I don't fall apart, even though my world is falling apart. That hope, it's living inside me. It is active. It's vibrant. It, it, it is thriving. It, it, it energizes me. It gets me through the day. But now, Peter says, it's not only active right now, but it looks toward the future. It anticipates something out there. An inheritance. An inheritance is something that you pass down to your children or other family members. every once in a while, some wacko will leave his fortune you know, to his cat or something stranger or something. But you know, in the Bible, in Bible days, they left their inheritance to their family. We have an inheritance because we're in the family of God. Romans 8 and verse 17, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared, for them that love we have an inheritance. Now, as I'm going through 1 Peter, memorizing it, meditating on it every day, I probably spent more time meditating on verse 4 than any verse so far. Because here's what I wanted to know. What is the inheritance? What's he talking about? And if you'll notice in verse 4, Peter doesn't tell you what it is. He tells you what it is not. That's all he said. He says it is not corruptible. It is not defiled. It doesn't fade away. So what exactly is inheritance? I've read every possible guess. I've read where it is salvation. I've read where it is Jesus Christ. He is our inheritance. I've read where it is God. And the major consensus is that it is heaven. Nine out of ten commentators will tell you that the inheritance is heaven because heaven is incorruptible. Heaven is undefiled heaven fades Heaven is not reserved in heaven. I, 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 I just stopped, that, that, that stumped me right there. It doesn't say that heaven is my inheritance, it says my inheritance is in heaven. It's in heaven. So what is it? So, so I'll give you some fluorology, right? Say what I believe the inheritance is, right? And then you can go study, and you can, think it was you're probably wrong, but but here's what I believe that it is. I believe the inheritance that he's talking about in verse number four is is what's in view is our glorified body. That's what the believe he's talking about. And there's a few times in the New Testament where the glorified body is mentioned, not described. You have first Corinthians fifteen, you have that passage. And even with everything that we have, there's still a lot of questions of what, that we'd like to have answered about the glorified body. Romans eight and verse twenty-two, we know the whole creation creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to win the redemption of our body. Our spirits are redeemed, our bodies will be one day too. First Corinthians or second Corinthians chapter five, verse one through three or or, or verse from before, you'll have to look at it. Paul is saying that that our body is just a house, but when we get to heaven, we'll have a new house. Our our body clothes our spirit here, and if you don't have a body up there, then it's just like a a naked spirit, that's not going to have it. We have a building that's eternal in heaven, and it's made without hands, it's a heavenly body. And we have a lot of scripture that promises the resurrection of the body. The question we'd like to know is how? And what kind of body will it be? Because when you die and your body is buried, then that body decays and it goes to dust. Will it be that body that comes out of the grave? Will it be you, or will it be somebody else? And and for just a moment, go to First Corinthians fifteen, and, and and we'll not we'll not get deep into this. It's a great passage, but but in First Corinthians fifteen, uh, Paul is giving this this great chapter on on the resurrection, and and just look at look at just just a couple of verses. Verse number. Verse number 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Talking about your body. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And the point that Paul is making in all of 1 Corinthians 15 is that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. There were some in that day who said that, that that there is no resurrection because they said that the body is evil, Gnosticism, all matter is evil. So why would you want a body on the other side? And there were others that said, no, there is a resurrection, but it's the same body. It's the same body that you put in the ground, the same body comes up. And Paul says, no, no, there will be a resurrection, and no, it won't be the same body. It will be different. I think the great example, of course, is the caterpillar of the butterfly. If my granddaughter pays was here, my granddaughter it has a fascination with lizards, and frogs, and dragons, and dinosaurs, and, 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 and all bugs of all kinds, and, 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 and the other day they ordered her, they ordered her a kit, now, now this, is, this is what my kids do, I would never do this, they ordered a kit, and it came in the mail, and, it, and it's a butterfly house, and it had two, it had caterpillars, and, and they actually bought caterpillars, they bought caterpillars, and it's in this butterfly house. And I don't know if they feed or what are the but but, but you're supposed to watch it and, 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 and you know what a butterfly or, or caterpillar is supposed to do. Grab itself in the cocoon and sometime later come out it's a beautiful butterfly. And then you feed it to the goldfish or whatever you do with the butterfly. And and, and that, that's what she did. Well that that's that's exactly that that's the that's exactly the picture. You you have a body, you have a body that is suited for this realm. We'll be given a new body that is suited for heaven. I can't explain what I'll be like in heaven, but I'll, I'll be different—same life, but different form, different capacity, different substance. And we could go through First Corinthians 15 and try to parse it out. Just rejoice and watch you know. You know what I would be like in heaven? I'd be like Him, who should change our vile body that it may be, may, may be fashioned like unto His glorious. Beloved, now are we the sons of God? It does not yet appear what we should be, but we know that when we should see Him, we should be like Him. We should see Him as He is. If you're suffering here, just remember that heaven is our home, and there's an inheritance that's waiting for you. Wednesday night we took prayer requests here. We do a lot of Wednesday tonight. Every single prayer request for physical, physical health, and I'm not knocking that. We know a lot of people that are hurting right now. Our bodies are decaying and dying, and the health is so fragile. But there is an incorruptible inheritance. It is undefiled, But Preserved in heaven. But you just look at verse number four quickly, quickly? To an inheritance incorruptible. Incorruptible. It's a body that doesn't decay, it doesn't break down, it has no. I'm not trying to be morbid. There's somebody sitting in this room right now. You have a microscopic virus for cell There's working corruption in the world, you know, Five years, 10 years from now, the doctors going to say you have cancer. treatment told, they we have it. It's just taking some time to work corruption. But up there, no virus, no bug, no bad sickness. Then he says to an inheritance incorruptible and undefined. Nothing dirty, nothing unwashed, nothing soil. You'll not need hand sanitizer in heaven. You'll not have to wear a mask up there. No social distance. Wouldn't it be bad to get to the pretty gates and there'll be a sign that it says, we recommend all unvaccinated guests, please wear a mask. Up there? Not in heaven. And then it says that fadeth not away. When something fades, it loses its color. It's not as bright as it was when it was new. Now children, kids buy faded jeans. In my day, we just let them fade on their own for free. But now you can buy them already wore out. But when you get to heaven, get your new body on day one, on day one, 10,000 years later, it will still have the same luster, the same shine, the same freshness, the same brightness. And then I love this phrase, reserved in heaven for you. Do you know what it is to have something reserved for you? Try parking in a handicapped space at Walmart without a handicap. That space is not reserved. For you. Somebody will let you in know, it. That's not reserved. For you. I watched two people almost get in a fight not long ago on a plane over was reserved. Some old gentleman had gotten the plane. You could tell you didn't fly much. And know where he's supposed to sit. He was sitting in the aisle, sitting on an aisle, 19C or whatever. It's actually supposed to be across the aisle, of 19D. It was. Some lady, some other boisterous, um, large lady, came. he was on the wrong aisle, seat, and she let him know. And, and he, he's, he's he's fumbling for his ticket. He's looking, looking at the thing and trying to see where it supposed to be at. You know, all she had to do was just just sit there. Just, it, it's an aisle. It's the same aisle, but but she, but she just creating a ruckus, and and he's confused, and, and she she's making him more confused. He was in her reserve seat. That, that's for me. Sometimes somebody will come in church and they'll sit down in your pew. And I tell you, your name ain't on your pew. Reserved no pew for you. Amen. Amen. Just want to say just want to say it every once in a while, that if some visitor comes in here and sits in your pew, can you rejoice and thank God that you had a pew to give them? Amen. just want to say that. There is a glorified body in heaven with my name on it. It is reserved for me. And if you'll think about that long enough, you'll start saying, hope, and good. well, I've got to be time. The source of my salvation is in verse 2. The substance of our salvation, that living hope, is in verse 3 and 4. Verse number 5 is the security of our salvation. We're kept by the power of God through faith in the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's writing to people who have lost all semblance of security. Going through life and all of a sudden something hits you from out of nowhere and is out of your control. and Your world can get turned upside down in an instant and everything can. What doctor's report, one thing. The longer you live, the more sure you are that there's nothing for sure in this world. There is one thing that you can be absolutely sure of. In that state. It says we are kept by the power of God that says that no matter the trial here, God will bring us home. The salvation in this verse, when he talks about how that we are under faith, under kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation. It's not talking about the initial act of being being justified. It's talking about the final act of being glorified, kept in the power of that day when we receive our glorified bodies, ready to be revealed in the last time. There is a veil that separates us from the other world. It's our flesh. We can't see the other side. We can't see the glories that await. We can't see our loved ones. But one day there'll be an unveiled There'll be a revelation. We will see what we'll see. Prepare for us the security of our salvation. We've been five weeks. We've been five weeks in First Peter. We finally made it through verse number five. And I know that it's taken long to get through these verses, and I understand But I hope that you can see the grandeur, the glory of our salvation. Because I don't know of anything that'll give you hope more. To get your eyes on heaven and on Jesus, how bright the, the promises of God for us. And I tell you that God knows everything that you're going for. God also knows everything that He's prepared for If you don't believe that, if you don't rest in that, if you don't take comfort in that, there's no other comfort. For you. And if you believe that, if you believe there's a heaven of that, that there's a God waiting for you, that there's a glorious body waiting for you, why wouldn't you want to live with heaven? Anymore? Why would you want to live for beggarly elements in this world wrapped up in the cheap, cheap, cheap trinkets that this world has to offer? Why would you want to live for another world? It ought to have a comforting effect in your heart. It ought to have a cleansing effect. He that hath this here, hope purifieth himself even as he is. I don't want to wait to get to heaven, to start living for heaven. I want to live now. The great salvation. Would you value his-